This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. Uh, you got to talk to a real perennial favorite of award seasons, of Vanity Fair, of humanity in general, Guillermo del Toro, who um, spent decades literally trying to get his vision for a Pinocchio movie off the ground. Um, our colleague Anthony Bresencan wrote about it in our Phase 1 awards issue, and you got to talk to him about it. And it seems the rumors are true that Guillermo del Toro is the nicest person alive. He is really the best. Every time I talk to him, it's just such an enjoyable conversation. He, he, I just think he just leads with his heart is the way I would describe it. And I know that sounds cheesy, but I think in a, in a world where there's like everyone giving sound bites, he's really thoughtful about what he wants to say and very genuine. Yeah, he's such an enthusiast about like his movies and movie culture in general. And I feel like that comes through so much in the way he talks about things. And I mean, in Pinocchio, it's just such a huge labor of love that you can see from every frame of the movie. It's a stop motion animation uh, adaptation of the original fairy tale, not really that similar to the Disney version of the story. Um, and, you know, spooky and magical and kind of classic Guillermo fashion. And um, I'm just really excited to hear what he told you about it. Yeah, he he's wanted to make this since he was literally a child. So... And then spent a lot of years dealing with nose. So getting mm. this made feels almost like a miracle to him. And and we talked a lot about that. And also, you know, he's been talking a lot about how animation is not just for children's stories. And this movie is arguably for adults. And so I think, you know, we talk about how, how much of an uphill battle that's been for him to, to get that messaging across as well. Yeah, it's really cool to see someone who's in a position like he is in Hollywood to get a lot of movies made, to really pursue something passionately that it, no one else could have gotten made and no one could have made it the way that he did. And, and it's such a success. Yes. And we also talk about, Katie, one of your favorite people, uh, James Cameron and Guillermo ah. have a longstanding friendship. And and we actually cleared up about uh, how he helped Guillermo um, when he was dealing with a ransom situation where for his family uh, a long, long time ago. But James was actually involved with helping him back then. So they have a long, long history together. And I thought that was really interesting to get into as well. Uh, yet another thing I cannot wait to hear about. Uh, let's hear your conversation with Guillermo del Toro. I am so excited to welcome Oscar winner Guillermo del Toro today. His fantastic film Pinocchio is nominated for Best Animated Feature, and I'm so excited to talk about this very special film. Guillermo, congrats on your nomination. How did it feel to to sort of hear that Pinocchio 
got that Oscar nomination? Very, very happy. I mean, I think uh, this movie was so long in, in becoming a reality that for a long time I just thought it was not going to happen. And then, you know, you add the effort of hundreds of people and many, many years, and again, you almost feel like you're never going to finish. So this is a great ending to the story of the effort uh, and the commitment that we all had for uh, roughly more than a, than a decade and a half. Yeah. But it, from what I've read, it sounds like your journey with Pinocchio has basically been your whole life. Yeah. Um, I read a quote where you said, no single character in history has had a deep of a personal connection to me as Pinocchio. Can you tell me a little bit about how that first started? Yeah, because because I discovered Pinocchio, it was the second or third movie I saw with my mother. And a little later came Frankenstein. And I immediately, for some reason, I... I connected those two characters as a kid. I thought, oh, both of them have parents, fathers, that create them and don't give them the tools to figure out the world. So I identified a lot. It was very, it felt very autobiographical for me because uh, my childhood was a journey of what people told me the world was and when I saw the world really how it operated, what was true, what was a lie, and often you you basically discovered that the adults lied, but they thought they uh, the, the things they were saying were true. So it was a very complicated thing as a child to understand these things. And Pinocchio and Frankenstein both sort of address this uh, being adrift in the world as an anomaly, you know? Yeah. I, I didn't feel like a regular boy. In Mexico, all the other boys were interested in football and climbing trees and uh, getting into fights. And and I was interested in reading and watching movies. And even from a very early age, I was very introverted. I was, if you can believe it, I was introverted and thin. <laughs> I trained myself to vanquish one and I naturally evolved into the other. <laughs> well, I'm curious when you, as a filmmaker, really seriously thought about making a Pinocchio movie. I know this was in development for a long time, but when did you first say, I think I'm ready to make this as a movie? I think, you know, I always wanted to do it, even as a kid, in stop motion or claymation. And I taught stop motion in high school and I have my company that did it and I thought this is a good way of doing it. Of course, I didn't have the tools or the multiple cameras. I had two cameras. I had a studio that was rigged for stop motion but around my 30s, late 20s, I thought it was actually doable and the same impulse that made Devil's Backbone uh, and eventually Pan's Labyrinth, I thought the combination of a fairy tale element with war would be really potent. Then I did Devil's Wagon with a ghost story, and I thought uh, around 2004, I saw Chris Grimley's design for Pinocchio, and I thought, oh, you know, this is a really great design, 
Uh, Greece had no intention of doing a, he wanted to do more the Collodi book. And I said, well, I have a few ideas. I can produce it and co-write it. And we started developing it. And uh, eventually uh, that got turned down and I tried my own version and that got turned down. Uh, but but I seriously, in the 2000s is when, when I thought not only we could do it, but we should do it. Because animation, stop motion had reached new levels of uh, sophistication, really. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At this point, I, I know there were quite a few years the film was kind of stuck in, as we call it, development hell. But I, I also um, understand that, you know, it was hard to find a studio who would back it. What, what kind of things were you being told when you were being told no? Well, the things that make a movie worth seeing are the things that make it difficult to get greenlit. You know, they are one and the same. Uh, I was having a meeting the other day for the next stop motion film that I want to do, which is very giant. And they were saying, but this is not what traditional stop motion does. And I go, that's why I'm doing it. Yeah. Because it's perfect for stop motion, but I got to prove it. And, and, and it's the same thing with Pan's Labyrinth, with Devil's Vagwan, with The Shape of Water, with Pinocchio. They sound like things that, in paper, they're not easy to understand. Once you see them, you say, of course, you know, yeah, yeah, that works, or, or I can see why he was pursuing it. But 
for a while, for decades, sometimes people don't see those elements. And to be completely honest, on the pitch meetings, I kept saying, this is not a kid's movie, but kids can watch it. And, you know, I wanted to be extra clear, which made it extra easy for them to pass. Right. Because animation is kept on the children's table in the banquet of cinema. Yeah. Most of the time, at least in Western animation. And that, that made it, it was very jarring for them to understand a movie where Pinocchio was killed a couple of times yeah. and talked to death. And uh, it was during the rise of Mussolini to, to emphasize the theme of lying and truth. And so I, I, I understand how an executive's head would explode. <laughs> but uh, the, the great fortune with Ted Sarandos and Netflix is we have almost a decade of troll hunters you know, and, and number one, Ted knew that I had pitched the series and became and stayed completely involved all the way to the end. I, I didn't just put my, my name and walk away. I, I developed the art of the season. I developed every one of the screenplays. I developed the animatics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I made sure we delivered great quality. So he knew he could trust me. And what he also knew is that I have the capacity to reach an audience emotionally, that I could make an audience get a big emotional reaction to this story. So he trusted me. You know, when he, when he said yes, he said yes in the room to Troll Hunters and to Pinocchio, just on the faith that we could pull it off. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think where you're at at your career, I feel like, Everyone should be saying yes to you because you prove that you can do these things, even if they do seem difficult. But it sounds like you still have a hard time convincing people even for the next stop motion or then especially, I assume, in animation, it's a little harder to get people yeah. to think outside the box. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I don't think it will ever get easy uh, in the sense that I think that we need to keep pushing things that are not normally done. Uh, sometimes you fail or you don't reach an audience for whatever circumstances. It can be the movie itself, marketing, a pandemic, whatever. And then uh, people again retract very rapidly and say, well, but uh, this movie or that movie didn't work. But when you succeed with propositions like this, it's a miracle of great beauty. I mean, the fact that those movies that I mentioned succeeded and reached an audience in the capacity and size they did is is beautiful. I think that what I find is when my biggest hurdle sometimes is after making them is marketing them. If they, if they are marketed for what they are, an audience gets curious. Mm-hmm. If they get this guys that something else that is more accessible and more common, they don't. So I really think... Uh, Unfortunately for me, as a filmmaker, sometimes I have a hand in the marketing. Sometimes they don't give me that space. And at the Critics' Choice Awards, you spoke about this on stage, um, about how animation is not just for kids. And it it sounds like that's... Do you still feel like that is an uphill battle when it comes to educating people on that? Yeah, I don't think it's, an, I don't think it's a battle 
that is going to be won by three, four, five movies. Mm. It has to be sustained. I think it's up to the industry, of which I believe I I am part of, and I I want to remain a part of it. And the animation as an art form battle, we have to keep insisting on it. I mean, it 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 is as I've said a few times this season. Uh, particularly in stop motion, we have the same elements on a live-action film. Uh, we have re- real cinematography, real production design, real wardrobe design, real directing, beautiful screenplays, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, but, it, but uh, we do it in miniature, one frame at a time. So we are to live-action what Ginger Rogers is to Fred Astaire. We do the same steps backward in high heels. I, I like that analogy, and I think we should keep pushing it and pushing the medium. I mean, I think there's really good, uh, it's a very good year for animation. Uh, Turning Red, Puss on Boots, Marcel the Shell. I mean, the, all the movies that are in competition are really interesting. They are all provocative or pushing in one way or another to the borders of animation. Yeah, I think that's true. And tell me about how you worked with the puppeteers, because from what I understand, you let them sort of improvise and and have a real, um, really participate. We encouraged the simulation of improvisation, and we did encourage them having the space to come up with things that were not dictated. But every single shot of the movie, Mark Gustafsson and I, would dictate very, very precisely. And then we would say, but if you find something else, do it. Because I think that's treating them like actors. You know, the movie, the entire movie, all the production design, all the wardrobe, all the writing, all the efforts of hundreds of people between action and cut are in the hands of an actor. It's invariably true in live action. Why shouldn't it be true in animation? So... We would dictate things like he scratches his right ear, uh, he takes a pause, he puts his hand on the back of his hand, all of that. We w- you have to dictate it and, and look away in this line. You dictate it minutely. And then you say, but if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. And if something else feels right, follow it. And, and we were good to our word. We did it. And the animators also surprised us a couple of times in ways that we, we both, Mark and I, were blown away. My, I keep, uh, there's a shot where Jabetta sits down and has to scooch and makes extra gestures, which is what we were provoking. We were saying, show me things that are not efficient because animation tends to be very efficient. Mm, yep. It has rhythms of sitcom or the rhythms of something too polished. And my my ideal scene is Geppetto, when he enters the empty coliseum where the carnival was and fights the balloon, it looks like an improv from an actor. But that one particularly was precisely dictated. Yeah, I think it, it, it makes it all feel so much more real because it's how we move through the world as well, inefficiently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm curious, uh, at the Critics' Choice, you... you you dedicated your award to James Cameron. I know you two have a long-standing friendship. Um, how how does it, your friendship 
live today? I mean, do you two share when you're working on things? Had you seen Avatar early? Like, how do you two collaborate as friends? Yeah, I mean, we share the guts of our films early. And Jim showed me Avatar 1 and Avatar 2 in the very, very, very early cuts. Sometimes I help him take out, like, uh, together we took out about 20 minutes of uh, True Lines. He came to my uh, editing room and helped me pare down Pan's Labyrinth, and uh, uh, he saw Shape of Water in an early cut, Kronos, you know? He saw it in an early cut. Can you believe that? He's been there for me since the first movie I made. And, you know, sometimes uh, you need that space with the the three guys that I do that with more often. I'm four, actually, is Alejandro Alfonso, JJ, and Jim. Mm -hmm. I do it almost every time I can. And, And he does the same. Now he lives mostly in New Zealand. So it's a big commute. <laughs> I, 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 I cannot do it. We cannot do it that easy, but it's a friendship that I, I, I lived in his house for long periods of time. When I was starting, I would live in the guest house. He helped me uh, get a negotiator when my father was kidnapped. There's the legend that he paid the ransom. He didn't. Right. I think the Wikipedia still says that. Yeah, so we have to correct it. <laughs> that is not accurate, but... But he, he helped us get a negotiator from England to help us negotiate the ransom. And the, and the, because, you know, you need somebody to guide you through that. And he was there every step of the way. He would, he would say, do you need me there? I'll, I'll fly today. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's like an older brother in a way to me, you know. And, and the other day he was interviewing me at the, at the uh, academy. Museum or the DGA, I don't remember. I think it one or the other. They blend. Yeah, <laughs> this time and, of year. <laughs> and, and the more he interviewed, the interview progressed, I realized that I have, through the years, learned so much from him. Many, many of the things that I hold sacred in constructing a world came from Jim or ideas that Jim. And a few nights ago, we were, I was having dinner with Roger Corman. And we were talking about Jim, and I realized, you know, obviously for very different purposes and very different proportions, I'm not comparing myself to him. But we both could do a matte painting, a miniature. We could both do makeup effects. We could do designs. And ultimately, is I have a great kinship with his approach. I, 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 he's an, a magnificent brand. I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> that there's a big difference in audience uh, but our approaches and desires for fantasy to be something of a different caliber in the world of cinema they, they are similar yeah yeah I think that's true it's it's also nice you're both sort of in the a race this year together because obviously he's been busy making Avatar for a long time so um, you get to spend a little more time together which I'm sure is nice you know what I love about the Avatar Enterprise of Jim is not since George Lucas has an American fantasy or science fiction in this case world entirely conceived by one person uh, has been realized. It's been many, many, many decades. 
and and uh, is completely native to him. And I, I admire it tremendously. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Um, when we look at the films, you know, this year, I'm curious. Is there a certain film you really loved? You know, there are many, many movies that I, I, I loved. I mean, I, I what I like is the variety of movies. There were things that absolutely were big in scope or ideas, and there were very intimate movies. There were really small movies. I think that you have different landmarks in the year. Obviously, I have learned through the decades, you don't bet against Jim Cameron. Jim Cameron is going to get the audience, and he got it again. We got people in the theater. Uh, Steven Spielberg does a very personal movie that is full of actual darkness under the family story. It's not, about, it's not only about film, it's about family and forgiveness. Uh, you have what I think is going to be this generation's The Graduate, which is everything everywhere, you know. We have many, many. I mean, if we could talk about the whole season. I think it's a really remarkable variety. And I think it's almost like every single size and genre needed to inhale or exhale after COVID. Like everybody was in their own quest to re-embrace cinema in every facet, you know. Me personally, I also connected profoundly with Bardo. I thought it was. I think I. I think it's his best movie, and um, I felt acutely every step of his journey with that. You know, so it's been a very moving season. I haven't landed uh, fully because uh, it seems to me that we. Pinocchio, we were barely finished when the movie premiered. So it's, it's been a season that started with Nightmare Alley, continued with Cabinet of Curiosities, then Pinocchio, uh, in the middle, I lose my mom. And right now we're in February, and I still haven't landed any of those emotions. I'm still in the air. Well, what, that that sort of leads to my next question about you know, I know Pinocchio was a, a lifelong dream, and now it's a reality. Uh, where do you go from here? What do you hope to do next? Do you need some time to just land? Well, for me, for me, uh, my normal rhythm is if it's there, I take it because I know that your last, mo your latest movie may be your last movie. Every single time at the bat, I think. Career end in a matter of months. People don't know how fast you can. It's like the stock market. If you take a vacation, you might yourself not bankable six months later. But this year, I have taken the decision of taking time to write. And um, I have a couple of projects that are brewing. But I will go into them, ease myself into them. 
one of them is live action, one of them is animation, and uh, I intend to do both if I can, but, you know, I, I also need to land from all of this. I need to process it, you know? I It was a very intense <laughs> emotional year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say to other storytellers who have a story that they've wanted to tell for years and, and they're getting those no's? Well, I say often that there is that beautiful saying that I don't think is entirely true. If you build it, they will come. Sometimes you build it and they don't come. <laughs> <laughs> but right. you got to build it to find out. You know, and, and, and what I think is the frustration you have as a filmmaker is that at least 60% of what you develop will not get made. You know, anyone that has written a screenplay knows that the journey from zero to a screenplay takes about a year, two years or more. And you feel that you achieved one goal and then the journey begins that now you got to make it. And it's almost an impossible is the the little point in the dead star. And uh, very, very often you don't hit it. I mean, I have over 30 screenplays and I have only 12 movies. So I know the rate in the flesh. Imagine all those 20 screenplays took about 20 years, roughly, of my life that led to nothing. Apparently, but it's practice. So that's the only encouragement I can offer. Anything you do, you know, people say every artist has a thousand bad drawings before they get to the first good one. It's the same with screenplays or with projects. If it doesn't ma happen, it's great practice. And you should not be discouraged because you should say, well, maybe this is one of those thousand drawings. Onto the next, and and every time I've had big movies that get suspended on the on the road to production, I turn to my team and I say, "Good practice, guy. Good practice." Yeah. And I have the same team for many years. Yeah. So, no matter where you are in your career, it's always fifty-fifty. It may get made. It may not get made. And uh, this will be my last question. This episode is coming out on Valentine's Day, which I think is appropriate because I think your your films all are made with such love. And I, I think people feel and see that when they watch them and they especially when they take this long to make. So what what do you love about filmmaking now in this part of your career? What is what what keeps you falling in love with it? Well, being. Being on a great movie, I mean, people people keep talking often, and the legend that you more often get repeated is how ruthless the industry is, which is true. How is full of betrayal, or but it's also full of great camaraderie, and it's full of incredible artistry. There's as much backstabbing in a bank, or a shoe store, or a post office uh, store a mail store, you know, as there is in the film business. I have the conviction that, however, there's no other industry in the world where you are going to work with the caliber of artists and and the passion to their craft that you're going to encounter on film. And, and very often, filmmaker to filmmaker, 
there is a certain uh, brotherhood. I mean, there is a beautiful sibling camaraderie. Uh, I, I know I myself attend many editing rooms. I, I get many friends, many directors to come to my screenings and give me notes. If somebody is in need, you try to be there every single time. I, I mean, it's a way of life. So what I love about filmmaking, you know, you can work for a company or you can keep good company. That's a choice uh, of how you approach your craft. I personally keep good company. And if that happens to lead to the making of a movie, great. And if it doesn't, at least it leads to a good life. Because this is a journey in which you trade a biography for a filmography. You end up, you know, people show their their photo album when they visited the great the Grand Canyon. You put out a movie because it took you two, three, four years of your life or more. And I think it's worth it. I mean, I'm on a movie set right now. I'm uh, sort of the PA uh, for Billy Friedkin, who's 87 and coming back to direct. I'm not doing anything uh, sophisticated. If he needs a coffee, I bring a coffee. (laughs) I just sit by his side and watch him direct. And I tell you, this is a happy place. This is the happy place for me, a movie set. Even if you're just the guy bringing the coffee. <laughs> I actually like it. <laughs> Less pressure, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but also you get to enjoy and uh, you get to... It's so beautiful to see other people work. You you become almost more aware than when you're directing. I think filmmaking is as close as... I've, and particularly in Pinocchio, we came so close after spending years together that it's almost like a carnival Mm. well thank you Guillermo for joining me I really appreciate it and congrats again thank you very much that does it for today's episode we'll be back on Thursday with our roundtable conversation in the meantime find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider and on our own I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca Becca M. Ford our editor and producer as always is Brett Fuchs I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 